0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Today on the show, we're taking a look at whether or not the New Testament has anything to say about homosexuality. That might strike you as odd, but that is the assertion being made right here in Ferndale by the LGBTQ who want to say, what are all the Christians worried about? Why are they so bothered? Well, let's take a look at their assertion, give it a fair shake, and find out what's going on in the New Testament. All that and more is coming up right now on Cross Defense.
1: If you're gonna refer to the Bible, I mean, I know my Bible back and forwards and I'm a licensed minister, but um, that's just it. There's never anything in the New Testament about being, there's never, there's never a word, the word homosexuality didn't come out until a few decades ago, yeah Um, you know, and there was never, um, there's never anything in there about um, being gay or, and it's like, they think that we, this is now a new trend and it's queer people have been around for
0: thousands of years. Those my friends are the words of the executive director of Ferndale's local LGBTQ nonprofit, which seems to be dead set on organizing drag shows for kids the holy spirit used our church sign to stop the first one and now in a redux of hercules's second labor where hydra's head was cut off it has given rise to two new ones in its place now there is an adult only drag show scheduled to occur here at ferndale's local repertory theater while the one that's open to children has been moved across the bridge outside of town to the College of the Redwoods, our nearby community college. That's the truth. Thanks for tuning into the show. This is Cross Defense, where we open the Bible to equip our minds, excite our imaginations, and comfort our souls all with God's Word. I'm your host, Rev. Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California, a congregation that sees clearly the spirit of the age and has not acquiesced to this zeitgeist, but in contradiction to it, joyfully lives in the apostolic traditions, just as they were handed down to us by the initial eyewitnesses of our Lord and servants of His Word like all confessional Lutherans, we take seriously the inspired words of St. Paul in Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And for this reason, We are actively speaking the truth in love both for and against the proponents of the LGBTQ movement, for the individual souls duped by the lies of the Rainbow Legion for them and against that very demonic horde that is marching against God and therefore taking captive those who should be his people. Today on the show, we're going to evaluate whether the licensed minister you just heard is correct. Does the New Testament have nothing to say about homosexuality? Is that true? Can that be? We will find out. That's the claim being promoted to the local residents of Humboldt County, here where I serve, via our public broadcasting station affiliate. Yes, our PBS affiliate. This is the sort of on-the-street message that we are contending with today, church, isn't it? Yes, it is. But first, my friends, we must never forget, never forget, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the dark forces of Satan and his spiritual squad of parasites. We fight for the people under the influence of the devil's lies. That's who we fight for, not against, for. We serve our neighbors, loving our enemies. We war against the power of the prince of the air to rescue sinners from the confusion used to manipulate and possess them. You see, ours is a hostage retrieval mission, dear saints. And often the hostage has an extreme case of Stockholm Syndrome and is therefore the very person we must contend with in direct spiritual combat. We engage, knowing he or she is an unwitting agent of our old evil foe. That is, we engage with love for him or her, even while it is him or her that we must battle with, using words of truth to break the lies of the devil. And just as we remember that we once had a log in our own eye in order to help them remove the speck that's in theirs, we are good to reflect on Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 which tells us we too were once under the same demonic delusion. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We too, once, were hostages. We have been rescued. And now, like little children playing dodgeball, we go back to rescue those who should be on our team, but have been taken captive. Today, this warfare is happening on the battleground, often referred to as identity politics. But we, you and I, are not political agents. Not at all. Ours is a spiritual struggle. I don't know if our human opponents would make the same proclamation, but I'm certain that their ideological leadership, their forefathers in their worldview declared as much. When the LGBTQ protesters gathered in front of St. Mark Lutheran Church back in June of 2021, one captive soul, a college aged man in drag, had on a shirt that said, Workers of the World Unite. If you don't know, That's the rallying cry of the Communist Manifesto, and it's no coincidence that he was wearing that shirt. Consider a few words from Marx and uh, from Lenin as well. Marx says, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of man is a requisite for their real happiness. The call to abandon their illusions about their conditions is a call to abandon a condition which requires illusions. Is your head spinning? (laughs) The criticism of religion is, therefore, the criticism of this veil of tears of which religion is the halo. He also says, we make war against all prevailing ideas of religion, of the state, of country, of patriotism. The idea of God is the keynote of a perverted civilization. It must be destroyed. Those are the words of Karl Marx, who also penned, workers of the world unite. Lenin, now, the famed communist, we have to use any ruse, dodge, trick, cunning, unlawful method, concealment, and veiling of the truth. Atheism is an integral part of Marxism. Marxism is materialism. We must combat religion. Those are the words of Lenin. And as I quoted Marxism wages, war against God, let us now consider as we build up our, in preparation for our examination of the words of this LGBTQ licensed minister, two sets of contrasting statements. Let's compare these two statements. First, Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so Jesus is the truth. Let's contrast that now with John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is the way and the truth, and the devil, the father of lies. There is no truth in him. What was it Lenin said that Marxists must do? Veil the truth. By any ruse, trick, cunning, unlawful method, concealment, combat religion. Another set of contrasting statements to to consider real quick. We have Jesus as the truth and the devil is a liar. So now consider this, 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as one might expect the truth to do. To lead to peace. Lies are confusing. And that's exactly what this Marxist statement says. This is Marx again. Words, I teach, all mixed up into a devilish muddle, thus anyone may think just what he chooses to think. Oh, my friends, is that not relativism as we know it today? Postmodern subjectivity as we know it today let me repeat marx's words for you file this back into your brain and pull it up when you need to understand what's going on in the world we are living in a marxist culture words i teach all mixed up into a devilish muddle thus anyone may think just what he chooses to think muddle confusion Lies. These stand in opposition to peace and the God of order, who is truth. The way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so with that in mind, as you heard in the opening clip, we have a present example of the difference between the muddled, confusing lies of the devil and the clear, orderly truth of Christ Jesus. The devil's forces have led this poor person to stand against God, and I was saddened to hear Satan has tempted her to carry out her spiritual attacks in the name of God, claiming before a PBS audience and the host of that show to know her Bible very well, backward and forward, declaring herself a minister, licensed minister, thereby appealing to the authority that comes from speaking God's word, being a minister. That's why those credentials were thrown out there. And then proceeding to state in a muddled way that there's never anything in the New Testament about being gay. That's odd. Kind of thought there was. But how many people will believe this to be true precisely because they saw it on television and because well to be honest they want to believe that it's true if even one person falls for it that is too many here's the clip again have a listen if you're going to refer to the
1: bible i mean i know my bible back and forwards and i'm a licensed minister but yeah. um that's just it. There's never anything in the New Testament about being, there's never, there's never a word, you know, the word homosexuality didn't come out until a few decades ago, yeah. um, you know, and there was never, um, there's never anything in there about um, being gay or, and it's like they think that we, this is now a new trend, and it's, yeah. queer people have been around for thousands of years.
0: So. I find Luther's words to be of immense value in this situation, in any situation like it. He says, know that Christ is marvelous in his saints, and beware of judging or condemning anyone. Why? Because they have Christ in them. Unless you see and hear publicly that he speaks and believes against the gospel. Whoever speaks or acts against the gospel, you may freely judge that he is apart from Christ. Under the devil, pray for him and admonish him so that you convert him. It is my prayer and my admonition that this false teacher is converted to Christ. Would stop waging war against St. Mark and Ferndale and all the neighbors, even yet to come, who haven't even been born yet, who will have to live in this town and this county and in the wreckage that she's trying to unleash on her neighbors. This licensed minister is a false teacher who has spoken and believes against the gospel. The New Testament has plenty to say, plenty to say about homosexuality. But first, we're going to take a break and then we're going to deal with this other statement that's also made that is false. Is it true that the word homosexuality is only a few decades old? That's the question. Am I, am I older than the word homosexuality? Maybe we're dealing with a Mandela effect situation here. We'll take a break. When we get back, we'll find out. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross Defense. Martin Luther wrote in his small catechism as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to
1: his household. He reminded the church then and today to learn by heart the basics of the Word of God and the Gospel. I'm Pastor Brady Finner, host of Concord Matters. Beginning September 24th, join me as we get back to the basics with the six chief parts. Grab your catechism and be ready for a simple, theologically rich study with lots of Jesus. Saturday mornings at 10 on KFUO and on demand at
0: KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. The word homosexuality didn't come out until a few decades ago. That's what this LGBTQ drag show organizer said. Is that true? Am I older than the word homosexuality? Well, mm, no, I'm not. Our licensed trans minister is simply not speaking the truth. Even on this lesser statement. A quick little etymological search online reveals that in 1892, C.J. Chaddock's translation of Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis gives us the word homosexual, at least here, if not before. From the German, homosexual, homosexual. And by 1880, in Gustav Jager's, from Greek, homos, same, and Latin-based homosexual. Sexual. So I'm butchering this etymological insert here on this dictionary, but this is already what you see. We have at least from 1892 the use of the word homosexual. It's a lot more than just a few decades old. Homosexual is a barbarously hybrid word, this etymological dictionary says, and I claim no responsibility for it. (laughs) I like it. I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It is, however, convenient and now widely used. Homogenic has been suggested as a substitute. H. Havelock Ellis, studies in psychology from 1897. That's 1897. I didn't do this thing, but that's the common word we're using now. Uh, Sexual inversion, it's listed here, from 1883. Later, simply inversion by 1895 was an earlier clinical term for homosexuality in English. Said by Ellis to have originated in Italian psychology, Writing, uh, let's see, see also Uranian, a natural love, was used in the 18th century, the 19th century, for homosexuality, as well as pederasty and incest. In 17th century to 18th century, we have pathic um, as a noun, and adjective in reference to a man that submits to sexual intercourse with another man. And all that is related to homosexuality. Okay, so uh, clearly homosexuality is a word that's been around more than just a few decades. But being gracious, in accord with the Eighth Commandment, I think this false teacher confused homosexuality with the word gay as a term for homosexual men. And that that word is much newer, but still, gay is more than a few decades old. It reaches back at least 100 years into the 1920s on the subcultural level and into the mid-1950s on that more common popular uh, type level, popular usage of the word, it was used intentionally as a descriptor for homosexuals to move away from the, the stigmatism of the clinical disorder, their sexual inversion. And so they started intentionally using the word gay to describe themselves. It actually used to mean, as many people know, happy. But even in between there, uh, as more than just a, a sense of delight and, and happiness, it also was someone who was uh, sleeping around with many women. But then it, it was co-opted specifically to mean just homosexual men. So we're seeing a similar intentional shift happening in our day and age, with the, the newest uh, push for perversion in our sexual uh, culture, sexualized culture, we're seeing the term gender dysphoria, the clinical disorder term, gender dysphoria, being replaced with the much more popular and, and soft term transgender, trying to destigmatize what is some this unrighteous, to use theological language, but unhealthy situation that man has, can develop. So, our false teacher was wrong about the word homosexuality. What about the more pressing claim that the New Testament has nothing to say about homosexuality? This is quite the shocking assertion. I can't believe that I heard it myself. I had to replay the clip several times to make sure I heard it right. And now you've heard it twice as well yourself. So let's take a look at, uh, let's go to Romans 1. And for context, and because I pray that we have some LGBTQ advocates listening, and I pray they will repent when they hear God's word. Because of that, we're going to start at one eighteen, and read through the end of chapter 1. I think you'll agree that the New Testament definitely has something to say about homosexuality. So Romans 1, starting at verse 18, for the wrath of God, I know, great way to start, right? (laughs) For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Hmm, Thinking in terms of Marxism, what did Lenin say? We must veil the truth. So we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Who's them? Men, mankind. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, men, are without excuse. Mankind has no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, perhaps on PBS, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we can certainly grant that Paul does not use the hybrid word created by psychologists, homosexuality, but clearly Clearly, from this very first passage we've gone to, we cannot agree that the New Testament has nothing to say about same-sex relations. In fact, St. Paul tells us that both men and women exchanged the natural use of their bodies, of the opposite sexes' bodies, in a burning desire that is a lust for the same sex, which he immediately says is unseemly and due a penalty. So not only does he say it exists, but he also says it's bad. He goes on to say, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There it is. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Mm. That's a really dangerous place to be in. The New Testament literally describes what is happening today with the LGBTQ and note that it's not just homosexuality that Scripture condemns as evil. There is a whole list of wickedness, all of which we see being celebrated by the woke Marxists today. And what else does the New Testament say about homosexuality? Turn me, with me, if you will, to First Timothy 1. And here, we're going to start at verse 3, just after Paul's greeting to Timothy. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, as Christian pastors, speakers of God's word, the aim of our charge, you Christian, the aim of your charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons... By swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There is truly nothing new under the sun. There are still false teachers who desire to be teachers of others, who desire to stand up and be loud and be heard. And then they make confident assertions about stuff that they don't know a single thing about without understanding what they're saying. That's exactly what this false teacher has done. I know my Bible backward and forward. The New Testament says nothing about homosexuality. That's not true. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's 1 Timothy 1, 3-10, 3-11. There you go. And here in the English translation of this New Testament passage, We literally have the word homosexuality. But it is English, not the original language. Let's go to the Greek. What does the word say in Greek? And I will probably butcher it because it doesn't roll off my tongue all the time. Because despite what popular opinion may be, I don't really like talking about homosexuality that much. (laughs) Arsenikoitis is the Greek word. That's the word for men who have sex with other men in the Greek from the first century and beyond. Those we would call homosexuals today. It's specifically, specifically the word for the active man in that unseemly sexual act. The one who is doing the act to the other man. Now, does the New Testament say anything about homosexuality without equivocation? Absolutely it does. To say otherwise is to make a confident assertion about something you know nothing about, as per 1 Timothy 1.7. It's to swerve from things like love a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And it is to lead people into a different doctrine, into a myth that is purely not true. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Not at all. What I want you to do is hear this as coming from Scripture Not just from Pastor Bramwell, out here in Ferndale, California, Humboldt County, I've been portrayed among those who uh, hear my words at St. Mark, who hear me preach, who are are listening to the sermons and then editing them or whatever. Those people who read our sign, I am portrayed as a rogue outlier, one who doesn't preach what the rest of the Missouri Synod teaches. (laughs) I know. They can get away with this out here in California because we're really far removed from many other LCMS churches, and the one nearest us, well, they make it seem like I am an outlier. So, I want to deliver to your ears today, my friends, on the chance that there are local LGBTQ people listening, whether they are LGBTQ homosexuals, transgender, lesbians, and queers themselves, or merely the new fad of allies, I want you to hear that this is not Tyrell Bramwell's opinions. The things I'm speaking, the things I make confident assertions about, I understand. I understand from God's holy word, and I speak in concert the same word that other faithful LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastors speak. We all say the same thing. Homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, and it is denounced as sinful, which, as you heard in Romans 1, along with all the other sins that people can do unrepentantly, it deserves the death penalty. Not that I would like that to happen to anyone. As I mentioned, we are warring for those who've been duped by the devil to rescue them from the death penalty but god's word does say that those who commit these sins without repentance who set their hearts against god who are debased in mind who forfeit the knowledge of god and choose on their own volition to worship the creature rather than the creator they receive the death penalty. Okay, so I don't say that alone or in a vacuum or because I want to. I say it because God says it, and it's what all faithful ministers of the Word say, even in this season where it's unpopular to do so. When we get right back from this break, we're going to take a look at this book put out by Concordia Publishing House called Ethics of Sex. And you will hear from another minister, not this one, hopefully to see that we all speak the same faithful word. And we are ordained ministers in that word. We'll be right back. You're listening to Cross Defense.
1: Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., Join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere.
0: Okay, so we do have this great resource at our disposal put out by Concordia Publishing House, the publishing house of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, titled From Taboo to Delight, Ethics of Sex. And it's edited by Reverend Gifford Grobein, who is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I had the privilege of serving briefly alongside him. It was a wonderful privilege. He is a great man. And uh, he holds a PhD from, just in case you're keeping score, the University of Notre Dame, for those who like, you know, that means something. He's a pastor in the church. That's the most important thing. And uh, the chapter entitled, uh, what is it called, uh, Biblical Response to Homosexuality, it was written by another pastor, Reverend Tom Eckstein, who as the at the time of the publication of this book, was pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota, and second vice president of the North Dakota District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Well, during his service, he ministered to people struggling with unwanted homosexual attraction, and this is what he learned and from them and how to approach them, and he has some wonderful words of wisdom for us. He will bring up Uh, exactly what the New Testament has to say about this sexual behavior. He's also going to bring up some of the arguments against it and then refute them, which is a wonderful resource. And he is going to probably round out the rest of the show and leave us with the gospel, the gospel for all sinners, even those who struggle with homosexuality. So let's get right into it. This is uh, what Reverend Eckstein has to say, the New Testament teachings on sexual behavior. Huh. So the New Testament has enough in it about homosexuality that there's a whole section in this book titled New Testament Teachings on Sexual Behavior. We are now ready to examine the New Testament Gospels and note what Jesus has to say about homosexuality. Christians who wish to affirm homosexual behavior within committed relationships are quick to point out that Jesus never condemns homosexual behavior. In fact, Jesus never mentions homosexual behavior at all. They thereby conclude that Jesus is indifferent regarding homosexual behavior or that he maybe even affirmed it. But the problems with this are obvious when one considers the witness of scripture as a whole. Below are the following reasons why Jesus condemns homosexual behavior. Number one. Jesus' silence on homosexuality does not mean that he affirmed it. Jesus never mentioned bestiality, which is mentioned in Leviticus 20.15-16, incest, Leviticus 18.6-18, or the abuse of people with physical disabilities, Leviticus 19.14. Does this mean that Jesus would tolerate or even affirm such behaviors? So just because Jesus doesn't specifically bring up bestiality, incest, and physical abuse of people with disabilities, does that mean, necessarily, that he affirms that behavior? No. No, it doesn't. Two, the Jewish culture of Jesus' day condemned even consensual homosexual behavior between adults. Therefore, Jesus did not need to address that sin within the Jewish culture. In addition, if Jesus had affirmed homosexual behavior, we should find evidence of him condemning the views of his own people since he never hesitated rebuking and correcting them on other issues where he disagreed with them. Jesus was not shy about telling those who were Jewish where they got things wrong when they looked back into the law. And so if this was one of those things where The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the muckety-mucks of the day got it wrong. Jesus certainly would have condemned them for it, and we would have a record of that. Three, Jesus' use of Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, shows he viewed the creation account as a commentary on God's will for human sexuality. In Matthew Jesus teaches that the only alternative to sex between one man and one woman in marriage is celibacy. So don't want to get married? Your alternative is celibacy, period. Some suggest that Jesus' mention of eunuchs in these verses is an affirmation of homosexual behavior. But the Greek term eunoikoi, refers to those who are celibate for various reasons and not to those who engage in homosexual behavior. Eunuchs were celibate. They weren't homosexuals. They were celibate. Four, in Mark 7.21, Jesus speaks negatively of sexual immorality. The Greek word translated as sexual immorality is porneia, along with adultery. The Greek term porneia, was used among the Jews of Jesus' day to speak of all the sexual prohibitions listed in Leviticus 18 and 20, and this included consensual homosexual behavior. So, when Jesus condemns pornei, he is condemning all forms of homosexual behavior. All sexual sin, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual sin, is sin. And it falls under that category of porneia. Five, if Jesus had openly affirmed consensual homosexual behavior between committed adults, we would have expected his Jewish enemies to use this to discredit him. Hmm. But the Jews say nothing about Jesus' affirmation of homosexual behavior. Good point, Reverend Eckstein. Good point. Jesus' love for sinners does not mean that he tolerated or affirmed their sin. This is really important for us today because we keep getting smacked upside the face with this idea that we are being hateful. We've got to love the sinner. Jesus' love for sinners does not mean, Reverend Eckstein says, that he tolerated or affirmed their sin. Jesus calls us to turn away from the sins that he has forgiven. There's no reason to believe that Jesus would make an exception for homosexual behavior when he clearly expected people to repent of all their other sexual sins and sins otherwise. So he doesn't say, I'm going to die for you to forgive you of being a homosexual so you can stay a homosexual. Jesus dies for us to forgive us our sins that we would repent of them and turn from them as we talked about last week as we dealt with Pope Francis's words about homosexuality not being a crime and Gloria's indictment of me that I was being judgmental and divisive and I pointed out from Romans that we are not to sin that grace may abound, but we are to consider ourselves dead to sin as St. Paul teaches. Number seven, back to Reverend time Jesus entrusted his teaching to his chosen apostles, see John 17, 16-20 and Acts 26, 15-18. When Paul shares Jesus' teaching with the Gentiles, whose culture had many who did affirm homosexual behavior, he clearly addresses the issue and condemns even consensual homosexual behavior between adults. Since the apostle Paul speaks for Jesus, we see that Jesus... Would have condemned homosexual behavior even between committed adults. So Jesus was there to, to send to serve, excuse me, the house of Israel. This is what he says. He came to serve Israel. His apostles are then sent out to serve the Gentiles, to take the gospel and go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And so when they do that, when Paul goes out as a missionary to the Gentiles, he does encounter a culture, a Greco-Roman culture that does have much homosexual activity within it, where the Jews had the law, Leviticus, saying, don't do that. So when Paul now encounters a Gentile population that is accepting of homosexuality, he speaks against it as we've already heard from Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1. And we will hear again from First Corinthians in just a moment. So now, Eckstein tells us we need to consider the teachings of the Apostle Paul on the issue of homosexual behavior, because we do, too, in America and throughout the world, live in a, a very gentilic culture, and it's growing more so by the hour. Romans 1:26 to 27, which we've already dealt with here on the show today, clearly condemns all forms of male or female homosexual behavior, regardless of the type of relationship between the people involved. Paul, who in Romans 1 alludes to the creation account in Genesis 1:2, bases his argument on the fact that God is the creator and his creation is intended to function according to his design. In other words, When Paul says that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature, he means that it goes against God's plan for his gift of sexuality between one man and one woman within marriage. Of course, some have attempted to find ways to reinterpret what Paul clearly says about homosexual behavior. In his book, Christianity, Social Tolerance and Homosexuality, John Boswell argued that God was only condemning heterosexuals who acted contrary to their sexual orientation and engaged in homosexual behavior. But there is nothing in Romans 1 to support such an interpretation. When Paul condemns men and women for sexual behavior that is contrary to nature, he means that men and women were created to function in a heterosexual manner, And that homosexual behavior is obviously contrary to this. He's saying that man and woman is complementary. We go together, male and female. Just like when you go to the hardware store and you're looking for the male end of something or the female end of something, it's those parts go together. Why do we use that language at the hardware store? Well, we get that from boys and girls having different parts that match according to nature. We can do all the theological gymnastics we want to, but at the end of the day, the text is clear, and anyone who is honest can read it for what it is and see that homosexuality is contrary to God's biological design that brings forth life. In fact, Reverend Eckstein says, even many Bible scholars who affirm homosexual behavior within committed relationships now dismiss Boswell's argument. For example, in his book, Homoeroticism in the Biblical World, Marty Nissenen writes, the distinction between sexual orientations is clearly an anachronism that does not help to understand Paul's line of argumentation. Paul does not mention tribades or kinoidae, that is, female and male persons who were habitually involved in homoerotic relationships. That we have terms for that. He doesn't mention that. But if he knew about them, and there is every reason to believe that he did, it is difficult to think that because of their apparent orientation, he would not have included them in Romans 1, to 27. It is essential to notice that Paul speaks of homoeroticism precisely as a practice. For him, there is no individual inversion or inclination that would make this conduct less culpable. Nothing would have made Paul approve homoerotic behavior. Clearly, Paul, to whom marriage was the only acceptable venue for sexual life, could not have approved of any same-sex interaction that even resembled sex between a man and a woman. And that is from someone a scholar, theological st- scholar, who affirms homosexual behavior. And he is honest enough to recognize that Paul didn't. And that Paul mentioned it in the New Testament. (laughs) In addition, in his book, Homosexuality and Civilization, Lewis Crompton responds to Boswell's argument with these words. Some interpreters, seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness, have read the passage as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. But such a reading, however, well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Amen to that. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. New Testament scholar Bernadette Bruton also has this to say in her book, Love Between Women. Paul could have believed that tribades and kinoidoi and other sexually unorthodox persons were born that way and yet still condemn them as unnatural and shameful this all the more so this all the more so since he is speaking of groups of people rather than of individuals i believe that paul used the word exchanged to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and they left it behind of course that's what's going on Paul is condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural act of people who had turned away from God. Some also try to argue that Paul was not condemning homosexual behavior within the committed relationship, but only lustful homosexual behavior between people who did not love each other and did not have a committed relationship. But such an interpretation, Reverend Eckstein says, is completely foreign to Paul's argument and ignores the wider witness of Scripture which teaches that the only place where God approves of sexual behavior is within marriage, between one man and one woman. In other words, homosexual behavior is always sinful and is not made into something that God calls very good, from the creation account, simply because the people engaging in the behavior are consenting adults who have a committed relationship. Similarly, as incestuous behavior is always sinful between mother, son, or father, daughter, or brother, sister, or mother, daughter, father, son, brother, brother, sister, sister, to include homosexual behavior, and is not made into something that God calls very good from the creation account, simply because the people engaging in the behavior are consenting adults within a committed relationship. So he's saying it doesn't matter if you love one another and have this feeling of uh, love, and this is very important to note as we start considering MAPs, which are minor attracted people, pedophiles, whatever that acronym's for, it doesn't matter if they love them or they say they do, it's not right. It's a sin. So let's jump, we're running out of time, let's jump down here to where Reverend Eckstein says, Paul also condemns homosexual behavior in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where he uses the Greek word arsenikoitis from the Greek word arson, which means male, and the Greek word koita, which means bed, to refer to men who have consensual sex with other men. The Greek word "arsenokoitoi" is not found in any other Greek literature of Paul's day. So some scholars have been curious about this word's origin. But most scholars now agree that Paul likely coined this word based on the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, of leviticus 18 22, and twenty-thirteen, in order to show that paul paul the apostle was not offering his own opinion just as pastor bramwell doesn't offer his own opinion or any pastor but simply was confessing the teaching of scripture regarding this sinful behavior we also find the same greek word used by paul in first timothy 1, 8 to 11, as we've already discussed on the show this morning, where he clearly condemns homosexual behavior. Finally, some Christians who wish to dismiss what Holy Scripture clearly teaches about homosexual behavior will resort to poor analogy arguments in order to suggest that we need not take the Holy Scripture seriously regarding the issue of homosexuality. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there because we're running out of time. Note something here that's really important. Reverend Eckstein brings up people who disagree with what Scripture says. They they don't go with what Paul says, what the Holy Spirit has inspired for his word to say. They say, I don't go with it. But they do say that's what the Bible says. Our false teacher is trying to say the Bible doesn't even say it, which is ridiculous, ludicrous. Scholars who are worth engaging in a theological conversation, actually acknowledge that the word homosexuality is in the Bible, and Paul does have much to say about it, and there's all kinds of nuances with the words he chooses to use and what they mean and how they refer back to Leviticus and these sorts of things, but never once do any of the people who want to accept homosexuality mentioned by Reverend Eckstein say that the Bible doesn't say it kind of weird, we didn't quite get to where he says that there is forgiveness for those who struggle with this unwanted homosexual attraction. And I want to say that right now as we close out for today. My friends, if you know someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, homosexuality, let them know there is forgiveness in the cross. It is one type of sin In a whole list of sinful behavior. None of us need to be stuck as a hostage to the devil. Christ died to rescue all of us sinners from our delusions and the darkness that we once walked in. Pray for your homosexual friend or family member. Pray for those who falsely teach God's word and say that it's okay or that Scripture doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Pray they will be honest and truthful. And pray they will repent of their sin. But they will not die, as Romans 1.32 says, but will reach repentance and live. That's it for today, my friends. Cross Defense is over. Thanks for hanging out with me this last hour. Christ be with you and with yours. Amen. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.